Philemon, Paul's letter to Philemon. I'm going to pick up in verse 17 and read to the end of the letter, um, and uh, we'll see how far we get today. We'll, we'll certainly cover the ground that is found in these verses, but the way in which this letter is to be applied, at least based on what Paul is giving us here, this may be a two-weeker. This may be a two-parter, um, which doesn't mean I'm talking too much. It means that what we're talking about, um, it requires particular attention to certain details and, by God's grace, um, dependency on him to walk these things out for the glory of Christ. This is God's word. Follow along as it's projected behind me beginning in verse 17. So, if you consider me, Paul speaking, your partner, receive Onesimus as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it to say nothing of your owing me, even your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I say. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I am hoping that through your prayers I will be graciously given to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you. And so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the scriptures. First and foremost, Lord, they are a gift from you. They reveal you to us. And so we pray by the work of your spirit today, your living Holy Spirit that is amongst us, that these words, more than, more than words found on a page, would speak, would speak to the deepest part of us, both the good news and the hope-giving message that is found here, but also, Lord, in a, in a more sobering way, Lord, in, a, in an envisioning way, the work that is called for as those who claim the name of Christ as our King. And for those of us listening, Lord, that would not say they are a Christian, I pray, Lord, that, that they would hear in, in this personal letter of Paul's truths that they had not perhaps considered yet when it comes to the claims of, of the Christian faith. In light of the, the culture we live in and the caricatures of not only religious views, but so many things, may the truth of your word stand up and be found to be more plausible than the caricatures that so often confuse conversations today about what is true. Join us, Lord, we pray through your word in Jesus' name and help me, 
a weak instrument nonetheless to serve you faithfully. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. While America has much to be thankful for this Thanksgiving, one of the things most Americans are not thankful for is the state of debt that continues to weigh many of its citizens down. According to one website, Dave Ramsey's website, I'm sure I could consult others, it was, it was easy to access. Almost three out of the four Americans today say they are burdened by consumer debt. They are burdened in addition by mortgages, those, those installment loans that we take out on our homes. 66, that is two-thirds of Americans in 2021 when surveyed were asked to report their consumer debt. The average amount is $34,000 before mortgages. Debt weighs heavily on the wallets and hearts of many Americans. And millennials and Gen Xers don't seem to be doing much better. This is just a baby boomer, of which I am one, as you can tell by the color of my hair generation. In fact, millennials, which is two generations ago, are out-borrowing Gen Xers. They've had more time to borrow. And now 52% of Gen Xers report that they are somewhere in the vicinity of $30,000 in credit card debt. And that's before we get to student loans. It's a burden. The state of debt among Americans is not thing I think most people will give thanks for this Thanksgiving, but it is clearly on their heart as it impacts their wallet. This letter in our New Testament and this sermon is not a financial seminar. But as you just read, Paul offers to pay a debt, to absorb a debt, to take upon us himself a cost that he did not incur himself in order to free Onesimus, a runaway slave. From his burdens. And therein lies an intersection for us. As we, as a Christian church, a church that has placed their hope and faith through the, through the message of the gospel, which Jim articulated clearly during our singing time, and, and we'll share again during the message, the, the simple announcement that Christ Jesus, the Son of God, died in my place and yours, he being the perfect representative, God's one and only son, whose birth we will celebrate in just a few weeks. Advent begins next week in churches throughout the world. He died in our place in order to not only pay for the penalty that we had incurred for sin, but, but assume our debt our spiritual debt to God, and dying and being buried and being raised again 
we who put our trust in Christ and repent of our sins and turn to him are freed from spiritual debt. Fully, finally, and freely because it's received by faith. That's the good news. So if you haven't done that and you're joining us as a stream, I would encourage you, read this letter carefully. For in reading this letter, we read of two people who were in great debt to God. But through believing that simple message, turning from their sins and putting their trust in Jesus Christ, have been freed from that debt and now are living a new story, living a life on a new journey, living spiritually free from any sense of debt to God. Isn't that good news? That's why we can abound in Thanksgiving, on Thanksgiving, whether the meal's good or not. And our meals are good, aren't they, Jacqueline? You make sure they are. She's the steward of our traditions. And I'm smoking the turkey this year, so she's making sure this turns out right, right? Christians have been freed from a debt they could never pay. In order to live like Paul, absorb the debt of others when they owe you something you deserve. Let's look at the passage. And my main point this morning is simply this as we look again at the passage. We are called in Christ to pursue the work of reconciliation as members of Christ's family, and although the word reconciliation isn't found in this passage, the theme of it will be the focus of my message. First idea here is this is a letter that acknowledges that we are a part of Christ's family that is formed and sustained by forgiveness. We are a part of God's family, Christ's family, that is formed and sustained by forgiveness. And I cite that using again verse 2, where Paul writing this very personal letter. He is in house arrest in Rome for the Christian faith. And he writes this personal letter to Philemon, who lives in the great city, use those in air quotes, of Colossae. He is uh, a leader in that church, scholars purport. Uh, he appears to be a wealthy man as well. And notice that the church there in that city meets in his house. Verse 2. To Philemon, this is who this letter is to, our beloved fellow worker, and then he lists some other names, and the church in your house, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So it's a simple point. It doesn't need to be elaborated. But the letter to Philemon, although extremely personal, the most personal of anything Paul wrote that's preserved in Scripture, addresses the church because the church is a part of Christ's family, the local body. That's what we are. We're part of Christ's family. And it has been formed and it is sustained by forgiveness. Otherwise, how can Paul say to them, grace to you and peace from our Lord Jesus Christ, unless God through Christ has first gifted them through faith with the reality of the Savior. And then through repentance and receiving Christ, they can now enjoy the peace that comes from being forgiven. 
we are part of a family that is formed and sustained by forgiveness. That's what it means to be a Christian. That's what it means to be a part of the Christian church at the core of your identity and mine, at the core of this church's identity and mine, is this reality. We are a family that was formed through the forgiveness of God by Christ and is sustained by the forgiveness of God through Christ. And isn't that good news? Somebody say amen. That's very good news. That's extremely good news. That's why we can sing and give thanks each Sunday that we gather because his mercies are new, because his mercies are kept in Christ for you. They're not kept out there somewhere. They're not hiding behind some cloud somewhere. They're not waiting to somehow mysteriously. They are kept in Christ for me and you every day. And therefore, we are formed as a body. We are sustained in our life as a church by the forgiveness that he has won. Second point. The family that is formed by Christ pursues the work of reconciliation. The family that is formed by Christ pursues the work of reconciliation. And here now, I, I look again at the text, and beginning in verse 17, I see that Paul, through that little personal pronoun, me offers to Philemon his example through a series of, of actions that Paul is taking and, and calling Philemon, this Christian man, to imitate in his relationship with Onesimus. Let's look at it again. So if you consider me, Paul, your partner, receive Onesimus, as you would receive me. And then verse 18, if he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. So as we look at the particular verses, and we're going to work through all of the remaining verses, we see in each of these verses, if you will, an aspect through an example of what it means to pursue the work of reconciliation in light of the fact that we are a family that has been formed by Christ's forgiveness and sustained. Let me define that word reconciliation since, since if you're like me, when a pastor uses a word or a teacher uses a word or a spouse uses a word, you don't really know what that word is and they expect you to know it and they say it a hundred times, it can be frustrating. So let me give you a simple definition of reconciliation. This isn't won't be projected. Reconciliation has to do with relationships. It's easy to remember. R, reconciliation has to do first with God, towards us, and then with our relationships with one another. So our reconciliation to God, as revealed in Scripture, takes place through Christ. And his perfect life is our representative, and his work on the cross as our substitute and his triumphant resurrection where death was repeated. So Paul writes in another letter to another church, 
2 Corinthians 5, he says that God has reconciled us to himself through Christ. So if you're a Christian, which many of you are, or if you're considering Christianity, through faith in Christ, we are reconciled to God, meaning the broken, fractured, hostile relationship that once existed between the creator and his creation, us, has been addressed through the precious, loving sacrifice of Jesus. And so we are no longer alienated from him or hostile in our hearts towards him, but through the Holy Spirit who has been poured out in our hearts upon receiving Christ, as Dave mentioned, we now are children of God. It's a complete change, not only in our relationship, but our identity. And so reconciliation first starts vertically, if you will, through the objective work of Christ and our being brought into relationship with Christ. But it is through that now that we are called to display the same mercy, to display the same love and tenderness, to display the same willingness to absorb the debts of others in the church for the glory of Christ who is its head. And so Paul begins to address Philemon about a very sensitive subject to which Philemon, being a wealthy man, feels he has been wronged. Onesimus, his runaway slave, who ran away from Philemon and in, as Dave explained, the mystery of, of God's providence, wandered a thousand miles to f connect with Paul in a house arrest in Rome, where Onesimus miraculously, I loved how often he used the word miraculously, now he meets Paul, but miraculously becomes a Christian. Talk about a road trip. He becomes a Christian, this runaway slave. And now Paul in prison is writing his friend Philemon back in Colossae and says, good news, brother, Onesimus, your runaway slave, is here with me. He's now a brother in the Lord, and I'm sending him back to you. Now, before we even go a moment further, we have to address the 500-pound gorilla in the room. Does the Bible condone slavery? Because Paul never says to Onesim or to Philemon, free your slave. You're going to look a long time in that letter, it's just not there. But what it does say is staggering. So just allow me, the history teacher that I sort of am, to qualify. The slavery that we read about in the Bible bears little resemblance to the slavery that was practiced by this country from its founding through the Civil War. The slavery that was practiced by this country was despicable. First off, it violates numerous scriptures 
in the Old Testament, like taking a, a, a person against their will, kidnapping a person, that in, in Old Testament Israel, you would be executed for that. In colonial America, that's how we supplied the auctions with slaves, is we kidnapped people and brought them through the Middle Passage in this country. Secondly, slaves in Israel were freed after seven years. American slaves had no hope of freedom unless they ran away. Thirdly, slavery in the Greco-Roman world was never based on race. Never. And they weren't property. It was based on debt. People would voluntarily enter slavery if they called that bond servant. It was based on um, prisoner of war. But here's the difference. In the Greco war world, slavery's bad. Don't hear what I'm not saying. But you had legal rights and protections, and you could work your way to freedom. That didn't happen here in this country. Even a basic introduction to American history knows there was a war fought to address the ills of slavery at a time in our union when it was destroying us. Now, I, I could say more. I'm, I'm not articulate. I'm not a scholar. We're going to make an article available and a link tomorrow if you want to do a deeper dive. But there's one word that answers the question, does the Bible condone slavery? And most Christians... Sadly, and I would count myself in this, don't use it to answer the question. And his name is Onesimus. To know the story of Onesimus is to see not only does the Bible not condone slavery, but it is the gospel. It is the gospel that diminishes, if not eradicates, societal distinctions and says to you and me we are one in Christ so at its foundation this letter sows the seeds of what will undo not only Greco-Roman slavery but should have prevented American slavery by all those quoted Christians that purported to be Christians because right here in the letter Philemon and Onesimus are called brothers in the Lord. Beloved partners in the gospel. They are equals in Christ. And so it's no surprise that church history reports, right? Because I love history, even if you can't say it with certainty. I'll find out in heaven. That will be on my first road trip when I take a road trip through the glories of Canada. Where does Onesimus live? Onesimus. Did Philemon free you? You were a young slave when you met Paul, arguably. But did Philemon free you when you returned? Because I read about Ignatius, one of John's disciples, who addresses one of his letters to Onesimus, bishop of Ephesus. And although we can't say with certainty, yes, Onesimus was a common name, but it was a rare name for a slave is Onesimus of the second century, the freed slave of Philemon, who is now a church leader, 
whether that's true or not, this is true. When the church does the work of reconciliation faithfully, it has a ripple effect in all of society. Interested? I am. If that's how God turns a world that's already upside down, right side up, through a single relationship recorded in Scripture, I want to pull this letter, dust it off of the shelf, and read it more carefully. For here is an example of how a church that was formed through the forgiveness of Christ and is sustained by the living God who forgives us every day teaches us to pursue the work of reconciliation. First way, verse 17. And Jim, this is my quote number two, and you can put them all up. Paul's example to Philemon provides six steps to pursue the work of Cilia, and the first one is his influence. He's influencing Paul, or Philemon, to receive Onesimus back into his household, to receive Onesimus not only back into his household, but as a brother in Christ, as a beloved brother, verse 16, it's right there. And Paul's using his influence to accomplish that. In this most personal of Paul's letters, he addresses Philemon as his partner, and he says, so, you see the word there, or since, or because you see me as your partner, and, and I am your partner, and there's, there's a word play there because it means a deep sharing fellowship too. It's not just partners in some business or ministry capacity. Receive Onesimus as you would receive me. Paul says later in the letter, hey, prepare your home, verse 22, I'm hoping to visit you, but before I do, I'm sending you Onesimus. Receive Onesimus as you would receive me. Wow. Mm. Now, Paul played a key role in Philemon's life. He's spoken about that in the letter earlier. He speaks of um, that. In other words, that Philemon was brought to faith in Christ through Paul's ministry or through Epaphras' ministry, whom uh, Paul uh, ministered to in the, the founding of the church of Colossae. But he's saying now to him in, in, in this verses, See Onesimus, whom I'm sending you as a true brother in this family of the church, as you would receive me. I can picture how Philemon's going to welcome Paul. I mean, stand in the doorway, roll out the red carpet, have his favorite coffee ready for him, which is probably my blend too, a Veranda blend with a splash of cream and none of the other sugars needed, ready to hand it to him, arm around him, Paul, I have missed you, welcome back to class. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, receive Onesimus as you receive me. Oh no, Onesimus likes chai tea. He's not a coffee guy. You need to get that straight. I'm being facetious. But with the same way, the same welcome, the same excitement. Now, what makes that difficult is 
Onesimus not only ran away from Philemon, his owner, but what's implied here, although we can't know for certain, is that he stole some things on his way out the door. He, he ripped them off. So Onesimus not only ran away, but he, he took some things. There's certain things in my home and your home that if someone wants to take them and they don't ask permission, we're glad to see them go. Like that ugly picture of the deer that some relative that I don't know, you can take that. But don't take my Red Sox swag. You took that? Onesimus took that. And Paul's saying, receive him. To do the work of reconciliation in the lives of others, we must use our influence, but it doesn't stop at that. Secondly, to do the work of re reconciliation, verse 18 and 19 says we have to be willing to absorb loss. If Onesimus has wronged you at all, Philemon, or owes you anything, charge that to my account. And then look at verse 19. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it. I'm told, and I'm not that smart, but I'm told the scholars say that when Paul would compose a letter in the New Testament, he wouldn't literally sit down with his quill and write it down. He would dictate it, and he would have a secretary, or I think it's called a manumist there, and they would write down what Paul was saying. You can debate me and dispute that, and, but that's what I'm told. But in this section, he says, I, Paul, write this with my own hand. In other words, he takes the quill back, if there is such a thing, and he begins to write in this letter to Philemon, if Onesimus owes you anything, charge it to me. Do you see what Paul's doing? He's issuing an IOU in the pages of Scripture for a runaway slave that has wronged Philemon. Charge it to my account. In other words, to pursue the work of reconciliation in a relationship that's been fractured, damaged, due to an unresolved conflict, offense, taken or, or dished out, we not only must use our influence as Christians amongst other Christians to see that it's done, but we have to be willing to absorb the loss. When I was little, and, and some of you think I'm still little, but when I was little and it was playground time uh, at the local elementary school, I love recess, but we had a bad pattern, a bad tendency in, during recess. We would get in fights, and I'm not a fighter, so my role was never to fight. Do you know what my role was in these playground fights? Has anyone had seen a playground fight? You know, the teachers are... They're not usually there, and you're out on the soccer field somewhere, and there's this unholy huddle that's forming, right? And everybody's screaming, you know, excitement and things going up in the air, and, but there's a tussle going in, right? You tracking with that? My role was to, to be part of the wall because I was tall for my age, not as tall as I am now, because by being part of the wall, the teacher can't see in to what's going on. And then when the teachers did approach, the wall watchers would say, uh-oh, here comes Mrs. Evans. Not really, but here comes Mrs. Evans. Guys, you better wrap this up because you know you're going to get a detention or lose something. Or... 
There was no one on my playground, beginning with me, that was saying, you know what? I am going to use my influence right now, my scrawny little influence, and I am going to step into the gap, and Dave, who wants to slug it out with Mark, that's a losing fight, they're offended. I'm going to step in, right? And I'm going to say to Mark, can I fight? I know this is a bad example, but guys, can I take the blows that, that, okay, we're in fifth grade. It's okay. It's, we wouldn't do this now. Can I take the blows? I'll absorb the loss because Dave said something mean about your haircut or whatever we yell about in elementary school, right? That's what it means to absorb the loss is you're stepping into the fray and you're saying, I'll take what this person did, but this is what we do often in the church. We don't say in those relationships where there's strain and fracture, I'll take the loss. We form the wall. We don't want other people to know. We say things like, instead of Bauer or Dave, you're a Christian. There's scriptures here that address how you're to respond to this person who's offended you. I do at least, but I don't think I'm alone. I say, you're my friend. You should be mad. What are you going to do about it? Or, you're my friend. That wasn't right. Should we go get help? No. Well, what are you going to do about it? We need to take some type of vengeance. That's the church. Should we, should we bring in the pastors? This sounds like it's serious. Or the life group leader? Or bring in just a wise, godly person? No. Because if we do that, I'm, I'm telling on you. Do you see all this? That's what the culture says. That's what the culture says in the playground moments. That's what the culture too often says when there's a conflict in the church. We wall off instead of saying, I want to use my influence. I'm going to be willing to absorb the loss. Third point, I'm going to help others, verse 20, see how reconciliation would impact those around them. Verse 20 Yes, brother, I want some benefit you in the Lord. In other words, Philemon, you're doing this. Receiving Onesimus will benefit your church. It will, it will have a ripple effect for your church. You're displaying the radical, stunning debt that has been forgiven you by God in Christ as someone who was, was a sinner and now has been forgiven and brought into God's family, an object of his love, completely forgiven declared acceptable, and as we use this word, righteous in Christ, so that the Spirit, you're all of that. So in light of how great was your stunning debt to God, and he has forgiven it all through Christ, help them to see how reconciliation and not walling off the relationship impacts others. Can you imagine, use your sanctified imaginations, how Philemon welcoming Onesimus would have impacted his family? Because they all saw how he got ripped off, and it was his right to punish, and they took his favorite soy. Can you imagine? Some of your families, mine too, need to see that you and I believe that your debt has been stunningly forgiven. 
but you're still pursuing the work of reconciliation. Mine too. But they've offended me. Or they'll never change. Or I have rights in this. I sympathize with all those. I just can't find it in the Bible that you're saying you affirm. I find it in the culture. I find it on TikTok. I find it in Christian culture. I find it on Facebook. I find it on YouTube. But what I find here, I find here something different. A family formed by forgiveness, sustained by forgiveness, and now through doing the work of reconciliation, having... Imagine what Philemon's neighbors would have thought when they, they had to have known. Isn't that Philemon's former slave? He ran away, and Philemon's like having a, a, a block party to welcome him back. What, what is going on here? Oh, they knew. I can only imagine what my neighbors know about me. Some of it may be good, others of it may be bad. He talks to that dog way too much. But they would definitely know then that I'm pursuing the work of reconciliation with someone who's wronged me. Even if they never tell me. As they know, when I'm not pursuing the work of reconciliation, even though I'm in church every Sunday, take communion on the first Sunday and sing songs about how God's reconciled to me, they would they'd probably know that too. They spent time with me. You're still mad at that person, aren't you? And we trust, lastly, as, as Paul does, and I'll end with this, God is at work, and he believes the best about Philemon. He never commands him to do this. This is not a, this is not a have to. This is a get to. This is not an imperative. This is a Philemon. Be who you are in Christ. Reconcile to God. Dearly loved. Now, in Christ, Onesimus is your brother. Embrace him. Embrace him as a new creation. And if there's a debt, charge it to me. I'll pay for your swag. What a picture of the gospel, isn't it? In the church, when relationships are reconciled, it is painful, it requires patience, it is hard. Where there has been true loss, it takes wisdom, but the resolve is clear. To work for reconciliation, we must first hear the call in Christ to pursue it as members of Christ finally. And when we get to that, that space, that beautiful space, and this is hard. Where we are at wit's end. We have no solutions. We have no answers. We, have, we don't have any strength or resolve to do it. We're now in the space where we said we wanted to be in the first place. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, I submit to you, King Jesus. As a new creation, I am in Christ, so I pursue the work of reconciliation, knowing that my massive debt towards you has been absolved, and therefore, 
I can work for reconciliation for those around me. Yesterday, I played my final round of golf. I'll end with this. I know I'm running over. Um, I'm not a good golfer, as Bruce and others can attest to. But I like to play golf. I guess I'm just a lovable loser, terrible golfer. I got there, and the course is beautiful. But it was empty. Like, wow, what's going on? Apparently, there had been a three-hour wait because the ground was frozen due to the frost Friday night. And to play on it would damage the greens and the fairways and the tee boxes. So they, for three hours, they had a group of disgruntled golfers standing around looking at this beautiful course and waiting for the ranger to say, all right, boys, tee it up, let's go. So they sent us off the back nine instead of the front nine, which we would have preferred to play the front nine. It's their easier holes. And I got to thinking. I got to thinking. That course was built to be played and enjoyed by golfers. But if there's a frost in the ground, it still looks beautiful, but you can't play it. Just ask those 200 angry men at Chamawa. <laughs> Smashing beers from nine in the morning, oh, it's crazy. church of Jesus Christ is more than a golf course. Your marriage in Jesus Christ is more than a golf course. It's not meant to be looked at because it's beautiful. We're meant to play. But if we're not pursuing the work of reconciliation, if we're not living out of our new identity in Christ, debtor to mercy alone, of covenant mercies I sing. We may fool the culture. They don't believe good things about us anyway. And we may fool fellow Christians. Because Christians are prone to take up their friend's offense and not call people to the harder work but you'll never get Onesimus out of that. We'll never have an Onesimus. Don't you want an Onesimus? I want an Onesimus. I want someone who, who by God's grace, and it is grace alone. He ends the letter with that. By God's grace, not only is restored to a relationship that's been fractured by his own sin, through the generosity of both Philemon and Paul, convinced as they are, as Dave artfully described, Paul is convinced what a debtor he was that God has absolved it all, murdering Christians and persecuting the living, ignorant of all that the, the Jewish faith pointed to, now, now converted on the Damascus road despite his ignorance and shown mercy and grace and forgiveness and Yes, Philemon, I will absorb the debt because I have been forgiven so much. It's a stunning gospel. Therefore, Philemon, imitate me. Be my partner. Forgive Onesimus. Be reconciled. For the sake. I'm not commanding you. I'm inviting you. Be the Christian.
you purport to be by the grace given to you in Christ. We are called in Christ to pursue the work of reconciliation. Do you treasure, I close with these, Jim, the app. Do you treasure the stunning forgiveness Christ has freely given to you? Then may we abound in thanksgiving this week with that. Who is it in your life and mine that I need to pursue reconciliation with? Who is it? Who is my Onesimus right now that I need to pursue? It's probably the person you're thinking of right now. And who is it in your life that I have been withholding unforgiveness toward and I need to extend forgiveness to? We'll talk more about forgiveness next week. Let's pray. Lord, we are thankful and also really astonished that in such a short letter, 25 verses, 355 words, the Holy Spirit can, my, in care for us, give to us such a clear, inspiring example of what it means to pursue the work of reconciliation with those who have offended us or to whom we harbor offenses. Lord, we pray that as we abound in thanksgiving this week for the grace you have given us through faith in Christ, we pray you would help us to take up the cause of reconciliation in our relationships with others. And Lord, where we need help, we pray you give us the wisdom to solicit help from people who will not take up our offense, but rather with us, gently, but courageously, point us to the work that needs to be done. And then lastly, Lord, we are so thankful. We are so grateful that one greater than Paul has intersected with our lives. And that when we owed you more than we could ever imagine, spiritually speaking, Jesus, you came as a baby. You were born in Bethlehem. You grew up as a man, a humble man of no reputation. The son of God, a servant of sinners like me. To offer his death, to pay my debts and ours. And through faith in your triumphant resurrection, we leave here, spiritually speaking, debt-free. Help us to abound in thanksgiving for your stunning mercy. We pray this in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Let's stand.